So if you First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. Verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and to be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Shall we pray? Loving Father, for these words and admonitions and exhortations, Yea, even warnings, Lord. We thank you that there is a certain walk of the believer and a conduct that we are to maintain in the church of Jesus Christ and to all who are without, that we may be known as those who are true and loving disciples of Christ, those who not only serve but serve one another, and I pray your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, simply given that is the title that I've given to this section, Servants and Serving One Another. I believe that it is important that we realize that as our Lord Jesus Christ was a servant of others, we also are to be servants of others for the for the pastor of the church, or for those who lead in the church, they are servants of the congregation. And then as far as the congregation is concerned, the, the believers, the saints, if you will, the brethren, they not only serve in the capacity that God has given them gifts and abilities in, but they have to serve one another as well. And so it is always good to give some general rule of a conduct and general rule of walk as a believer. And we find that here Paul gives certain 
uh, encouragements or admonitions, even exhortations we would call them, to the brethren and in light of the Lord's return and even the day of the Lord that should come at a later time, which uh, of course uh, Pastor Bo did give some recognition to this morning in his message, we realize that all these things that relate to our, our life and uh, waiting upon the Lord are watching, if you will, until the coming of the Lord Jesus, uh, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and honesty. And so we'd like to look at several areas here this afternoon. First of all, admonishments to honor those who serve as leaders over the flock. We know that uh, it is necessary to have order in the church, and God has placed, of course, um, some to lead in the ministry. Uh, we find that he mentions apostles and prophets and pastor-teachers in the ministry, in the book of Ephesians. And we find that the whole idea of, of those who are apostles, or those who were sent, and of course there were those apostles of the Lord that were sent out and had in, in the early church and did serve, and uh, prophets, uh, generally speaking, not Old Testament type prophets, but in the New Testament, prophets who were sent to proclaim the message. A prophet was either a foreteller or a foreteller. A foreteller, you know, we think of a prophet in the Old Testament, and they told something that was going to happen in the future. It may be a near future, or it may be a far future, but the prophets were to tell. Uh, and many of the prophets did. What kind of prophets are there in the New Testament? Well, we know in the first century church there were those who were given to prophesying that they did speak the word of God. Even probably Paul the Apostle would fit into that category. Certainly he gave revelations that others did not know except God gave it to him. And then you have the sense of, of a forth-telling, a prophet who forth-tells. Well, what, is, what kind of prophet is that? Well, one who proclaims the word, one who heralds the word. Um, as the word, I think the word preaching is often translated caruso, and it means to herald forth. And we are to herald forth the word of God. Now, who does that? Primarily in the church, of course, it is the, the ones who are leaders in the church who are leading, pastoral teaching, ministry, preaching, those who are leading in the church. And, um, and so we find that it's important to admonish, there are certain admonishments who are given to the congregation to honor those who serve as leaders over the flock. Secondly, exhort and warn the unruly and faint of heart, as we see in verse 14, uh, just a brief mention of that here, is to say that sometimes there are unruly sheep. <laughs> unruly sheep. Have this little flock of sheep, and you have one or two sheep that just want to get away from the shepherd just as far as they can, and uh, don't want to pay any attention to the shepherd. Uh, of course, we know in real life the shepherd, you know, who 
he has a sheepdog, right? And he tells, sends out the dog and he gets him to corral the sheep in a certain place or other that he might uh, control them. What about in the church of Jesus Christ? Well, the church has a flock and there they are. We are called sheep. <laughs> and, uh, and we find that the pastor is often called an under-shepherd, uh, one who shepherds the sheep. And sometimes there are some unruly sheep. And uh, so they have to be warned and exhorted. And then, then there are some who are faint of heart, uh, that they, uh, they need some, in, some great encouragement if possible. And uh, so to encourage the faint of heart is necessary. Uh, so that is an important role in the ministry as well. And then, of course, there's some general exhortations at the end, which he gives general words of edification to the flock to build up the flock of God. And some of these are just very short uh, exhortations that are given here, but they're very powerful ones. They're very meaningful ones, um, such as quench not the spirit. Certainly that is a very powerful and meaningful exhortation to the flock of God, not to quench the spirit of God. And, uh, of course, there is the one uh, to abstain from the appearance of evil. Now, certainly that is a very powerful and needed exhortation to the flock of God as well. Uh, so um, let us just take a, um, a closer look at some of these as we go through these verses and, and talk about them here. And so these very varied, varied exhortations to the saints... Um, are necessary in the mind of the apostle as he is writing to the first century church in Thessalonica and uh, he says and we beseech you brethren to know them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish them well what does it mean to know to know someone to know someone well, I suppose that, um, you know, if he's talking about those who are leaders in the church, be it, uh, be it an elder or a pastor, um, then certainly um, the elder or the pastor knows perhaps more uh, closely what it means to do what he is doing. Certainly there is a, there is a greater responsibility to the elder or pastor in serving because he is given the responsibility of, of leading the flock, the whole uh, flock of, uh, that has been given to his charge. Uh, but how do you know him? How do you know that person who is to, to serve in this capacity? And we beseech you, brethren, so he's talking to the congregation, to know them who labor among you. And certainly it does not mean just to know the person's name. I mean, certainly probably a lot of people had heard of, about the Apostle Paul. But what did it mean to know him? Well, don't you suppose it probably meant to understand fully the capacity to which God had given him responsibility to serve in the role that he had been given. Now see, that's a little bit different, isn't it? To walk in somebody else's shoes for a little while. Um, have you ever taken over for somebody who's been a leader, you see? Well, you don't know really what it means to do that person's job um, or hold that person's uh, accountability 
until you've been there and are doing it. Well, let's take a little simple illustration, such like a, a Sunday school teacher. Say the Sunday school teacher was out, and um, you were asked to, will you, will you take the kindergarten children this morning uh, to, to um, teach the little kindergarten kids? And uh, probably you have a blank expression on your face at the moment, and you say, what am I going to do with all those kids? <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, you begin to wonder what did the what did the teacher do to keep those little kids happy and uh, somehow entertained, if we might use that word. But at the same time, teach them a Bible story. Teach them a Bible story. Well, my my wife loved little children. She really did. She loved them. She worked with Head Start for about twelve years, or maybe it was a little longer than that, but. She loved them. She, you know, she drove them around on a little bus, picked them up, took them home. But she did more than that. She went in the classroom. She was with them in the classroom. Because there were some other people who were the teachers in the classroom. My wife wasn't a teacher. She wasn't a licensed teacher. But she was there as a helper in the classroom. So what does a helper do? Well, a helper has to do everything that is needed to try to take care of these little ones. If they need their nose wiped, you wipe their nose. If you need to lead them to the bathroom, you take them by the hand and take them in the bathroom. And make sure they wash their hands before they come back out. If they're eating something, you have to tell them, well, try it. Even if you don't like it, you need to try it. Just try it. And uh, all these things that, 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 uh, that you have to do. Well, it, uh, until you have to do something that somebody else does, you, you, you might consider it. You might say, oh, they're teaching the kindergarten kids. But unless you have, have that responsibility yourself, you kind of don't know the pressure of it, right? You don't know exactly what that means. So the little kids can be quite intimidating to, to anybody. Um, and uh, I've seen many people, they just wouldn't take, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't take it. I mean, you, well, the teacher isn't here this Sunday. Can you take, well, I don't know as I can. Um, maybe you could find somebody else, you know. Uh, they might give another excuse. Or they just, might just run in the other direction, you know. <laughs> well, what about being the pastor? Have you ever thought about that? What, what does it mean to stand up and do what the pastor does? Well, you say, well, he has a special calling. Well, that's true. He does have a special calling. Uh, he, has, he has a burden to, to do the thing that he is doing. But what happens uh, if, uh, if uh, the pastor can't do it? If he isn't there to do it, you see, well, somebody has to fill in. Somebody who's capable of doing it. And they don't get up and just read a story, do they, Dave? No. They have to be able to read the Bible and say something that is educating as well as ministering to people from the Bible. Uh, we have to preach Christ. We have to preach Christ. And um, public speaking is not so easy sometimes. You know, I remember when I first started ministering and pastoring. And where did they send us? They sent us to the old age home <laughs> to talk to the people in the wheelchairs who couldn't get away. <laughs> so, so we we would go to the nursing home and we would uh, practice preaching our messages to people in the nursing home or, or in the retirement center. There was one particular home I went to in Florida on. It was, the lake, it was Lake Placid. It was the, actually, that was the lake. That was the name of the lake. There was an alligator out in the lake, and I think that's why it was so placid. Nobody wanted to go in that little lake. 
<laughs> so we used to go to the retirement center <clears throat> and uh, we'd go up a couple of flights to the, I don't know if it was the top flight or what, but it was up there pretty high and, uh, and we'd, we'd preach. I'd preach to the, the retirement people who came. Uh, to, and you don't, you don't know who you're preaching to. They might be Baptists, they might be Assembly God, they might be Methodists, they might be Lutheran, they might be Catholics, they might, if you don't know who, who they are or what they are, you just get up there and you want to give a message and you want to preach to them Christ. Have you ever done that before, you see? You see? Have you ever done that before? What does it mean to know, to know? You see, it's what he says here. He says here, he says, um, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them who labor among you. Do you understand, you see? Do you have an understanding of what it means to do what the under-shepherd is doing? To know them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, in the Lord, and admonish you. Well, see, that's one of the qualifications of preaching. You have to be able to to teach the ministry of what the Bible has to say. Now, how do you do that? Well, if you're going to teach, you say you've got to have a good interpretation of the Bible. So you got to you got to interpret it. But what, what might what might that in, in, include? Well. Well, you've got to have some historical context to the passage. You just can't pick it out of the thin air and throw it up in the air and, and think people are going to understand what's going on here in the text. You've got to have some historical context to it. You've got to, you've got to ground it somewhere. Well, this is in the first century. We know that. And we know who the writer is. It's the Apostle Paul. And we know where he's writing from. It's one of the situations where he probably is in confinement or certainly limited in, in going back to the Thessalonian church. We, we have to understand that he's been through a lot of persecutions and a lot of sufferings. We understand that, in other words, see, that all of this stuff comes together, doesn't it, in understanding the text. And then there's the sense of interpretation. What do you, what, how do you interpret something? Well, of course, if you, if you know the Greek, well, you can go, refer to the Greek, but not everybody wants to hear you spout off a lot of Greek words all day long. Uh, in, in the congregation. I mean, remember, we're sheep. We're sheep. We've got to be fed some pretty simple food here in order for us to understand what's going on. So what does the pastor do? He does his own, he does his own research at home. Then he comes and he wants to give something that is, that is, um, um, can be digested by the congregation. They're not ready for first century, for first century Greek, uh, they, but they want to know what the word means. So he tries to figure out what the word means in the context and, and everything, and then he gives them something from the text and says, well, you have to really know this pastor, this elder, this leader. You have to understand what that person goes through if you're going to, if you're going to really respect what that person does and understand the situation they're in. And then there is the sense of um, exhortation, application, um, all kinds of various things that you can bring into the message to help the congregation understand why this text is important to them. You see, why it's important to them. Well, all that comes together, and of course we, sh- we also want to throw in there a good word of application, something that applies to you, and uh, if you're taking all of that into consideration, plus the burden of the heart of the apostle and his preaching, 
then they begin to understand a little bit of what it means to know. To know. The uh, effort that the apostle has to put into it here. Uh, the leader. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them who labor among you. And of course there is a lot of other things that went into this. Paul the apostle was a tent maker. Just because he needed to you know, get some money to live. And he couldn't always depend upon the congregation because they, they weren't independently wealthy themselves and couldn't support him fully. And so you find a lot of pastors, what do they do? They, they do tent making. They call it tent making pastors. You know, they, they, they serve in the church, but at the same time they're working out in another job. Now how does that affect their ministry, you see? How does that affect what they're doing? Uh, don't you think probably has some effect, right, on the, the, the past person and what he is trying to accomplish. It takes time away from uh, the ministry that uh, the, the pastor would often dedicate uh, to service. So all of these things, and so the Apostle Paul, he, he's telling them, do you really understand who these leaders are over you and the Lord? And do you know? Do you know them? Do you know them? And we beseech your brethren to know them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That they're not just uh, over you in the sense of uh, lording it over somebody. Uh, it's a very poor pastor who thinks he, he can just be a boss of somebody in the ministry. You know, that's... You know what it is to, to work under a boss, right? Out there in the world, you know what that is. You walk around in fear, perhaps, if he's the wrong kind of boss and you, he's unapproachable. Or if he's kind of one of those people that knows it all and you don't, you don't know anything anyway and you're just, you're just there to do a job. And Well, no pastor should be like that, should they? No pastor should be like that, certainly. A pastor ought to be understanding um, and be kind and, and serving. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. The Lord. Well, the Lord is the, is the one that the pastor serves, and he's there to serve as well the congregation. And then, as he serves, he admonishes and seeks to bring words of admonition to the congregation, to the sheep, to the sheep. Verse 13, and he says, And esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake. Recognize their, their role and their position and allow that you would give proper respect to their work and labor of love. And he says here, very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. And be at peace. So it calls for, it calls for us as believers to, to know what the pastor is doing, what the leaders are doing, what the elder is doing, serving the Lord, seeking to honor Christ, bringing out those things and laboring, uh, to encourage the flock to minister to the flock of God and 
it is the flock's responsibility to recognize this and so take note of it and esteem them and or to respect them and uh, also uh, to recognize that they are to be of one unity in Christ, to be at peace among yourselves. So together, the flock is to be at peace among themselves. No, no conflict, in other words. And so the, he brings out this uh, very important admonishment to the flock. And of course, what is the value of this? The value of it is that everybody begins to understand, as we might say, they're all on the same page. We're all on the same page. We're all working for the same goal. We're just serving in a different capacity that we might honor Christ. That we might bring forth the message of Jesus. That we might be a congregation that is honoring to the Lord. We're all on the same page here. Uh, that, that Jesus might be glorified through the, the church. Secondly, he says here, exhort and warn the unruly and faint of heart. And uh, so in verse 14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly and encourage the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. Now here is a, here is a leader who is um, in touch with the congregation. Um, you know, it's, it's some, in a big church, it's, you know, I would think this would be very difficult, right? I mean, if you're, if you're in a big church where there's, say, we have a very small church, we've always had small churches, right? We, 20, 30, 40, 50 people, if you had 50 people, you'd think you're doing fantastic in these small towns. But if you happen to be in Lakeland, Florida, um, or Chicago, or New York City, or Baltimore, or Georgia, or California, or some of the big central metropolitan areas, and you had congregations of 200, 500,000 people. I mean, I don't know how some of these megachurches even begin to handle what it means to minister to people. They, they, I mean, it's got to be a a big job, a big, really big job. Certainly you've got to have more than one, one leader in the church. A lot of people who are under the, the pastor, serving, trying to minister to people. Because uh, it just complicates the whole issue, trying to, to know what's going on in the congregation. But he says, uh, exhort the brother and warn them that are unruly. There's bound to be people who need to be corrected um, lovingly, corrected, and encourage the faint-hearted. Those who, um, not unruly necessarily, but they're just very weak in faith perhaps, so they're going through a difficult time, or they're going through various trials and sufferings, and, and they're faint of heart. They, it's almost as though you, you get a sense that some of these people have lost sight of, the, of their walk with Christ, and so they, they're not... Um, uh, fully on board, and and somebody has to come alongside them and, and try to encourage them. He says, support the weak. Be patient toward all men. Be patient toward all men. And uh, the longer, um, longer I'm in the ministry, I realize that all these things are so much, so necessary to the work of the ministry that we need to faithfully understand and work toward the uh, 
encouraging the flock in all of the various avenues of, um, of ministry to them. And then uh, we find in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, there's a lot of things that are kind of um, one-liners, you might say, but they are various words of edification to the flock. In verse 15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but O ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now we might say, well, to render evil for evil, if somebody did some harm to you, uh, and the, and the pastor knew that you was hurt in some way by someone, and um, he found that you were trying to get revenge, well, he would probably want to talk to you and tell you that really wouldn't be the thing to do. You see, as uh, as brethren in Christ, we know that we're not supposed to act toward others in that manner. Uh, even if they're unsaved, we're not supposed to do that. And certainly not to, the, not to other brethren in Christ, we're not to do that. But uh, the, the world does that. The world renders evil for evil. You know, they're all about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, dog eat dog. And who's got the biggest bone? And if, you, if I get a chance, I'm going to get the bone away from you. You know, they're all about trying to put themselves up and putting somebody else down. But as, as a brethren in Christ, we know that is not what God intends for us to do. And Jesus taught his own disciples to be servants one of another. He washed the disciples' feet. He humbled himself to wash their feet. And said, you are all also to, uh, to wash one another's feet. You're also to be servants one of another. And so this whole idea of, of rendering evil for evil certainly is is something that should not be carried out in the congregation, and that the pastor must be aware of those things that are going on and, and make sure that um, that is not continued. Um, but ever follow that which is good. So it's a contrast, one, one and the other. Um, to follow that which is good, that's what we are to do, rather than to render evil, both among ourselves, yourselves, and to all men. All men, even those who are outside the church. Uh, we are to be careful how we have our uh, operating relationship with other people, that it is in a good manner and to the glory of God. In verse 16, um, the same general area, he says, Rejoice evermore. Uh, rejoicing is something, of course, that we know that we have because of Christ. It's not because of circumstances, it's because of our relationship with Jesus. And uh, so, um, I believe this, perhaps this verse right here might be considered one of the shortest verses in the New Testament. Because Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Gospels, we might say. But here, I think, this one is sometimes referred to as kind of the shortest uh, verse in the New Testament. Um, but certainly it is a most powerful, powerful verse. It's difficult sometimes to rejoice in the midst of difficulties, but we know God requires us to trust in Him. And our rejoicing is to be found in Christ. Pray without ceasing. It does not mean that, of course, that you, you're always in prayer. It means that you pray upon every occasion. That you pray, that is the first thing you think of, not the last thing. 
and that you're seeking to um, encourage one another through prayer. Now, I'm sure that you have often had somebody call you and say, will you pray for such and such? Some particular need that somebody has. And that is a good thing. It's the first thing that we want to resort to is prayer. Uh, even Even though we have some reluctance about saying, well, I don't know if I'm going to make all that much a difference in that person's life through prayer. Sometimes we don't think our prayers are going to go very far, do we? We have a we have we think they're kind of short-legged prayers. They they don't stand too tall. Well, that's not the fault of praying. That's the fault of you know us. <laughs> but we're called upon to pray, and so uh, some of the some of those simple things are the most powerful tools. And so rejoicing is a powerful thing to to keep in upon one's heart. And I say, well, that's a good attitude, isn't it? To be uh, in rejoicing. Somebody that you know that are rejoicing all the time, you might say, how do they do it? How do they do that? Well, maybe they're prayer people too. Maybe that same person is a person who prays a lot. So they, they kind of go hand in hand is what I'm saying. These things often go hand in hand. Uh, rejoicing evermore, praying without ceasing, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So we have three different things here. To rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. Wow, that's pretty good. Pray, rejoice, and give thanks. Now you say, I can't remember the whole verse, but I can remember this much. I'm supposed to pray, I'm supposed to rejoice, and I'm supposed to give thanks. And um, if, we can, if we can keep that kind of a relationship going um, in the church... And in Christ, we find that will be a great blessing not only to us but to others as well. As verse verse 18 says, And for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So you might want to underline that one. And when when someone says to you, What's the will of God for me as a Christian? You You can pull this one up anytime. He can say, this is it. You can rejoice evermore, you can pray without ceasing, and you can give thanks to the Lord in all things. This is the will of God. You see, we look for, th- we look for the will of God many times, and it's right in front of our eyes. And this is one that God will truly bless you with. Um, verse 19, quench not the spirit. Now what does he mean here? Well, we know what it means to quench something, to to um, dampen something. Uh, you say you have a, have a fire outside and uh, it's getting nice and warm and you've got to go in, so what do you do? You take some snow and throw on the flame. Automatically uh, dampens the, the flame right down and it's stopped. There's no more heat. Um, can't do anything with it anymore. The power is gone. Well, you see, sometimes people, are, they dampen the work of the Spirit of God by their attitude. Maybe they're not rejoicing. Maybe they're not praying. Maybe they're not giving thanks. Maybe they go around with a chip on their shoulder all the time. Or they have this terrible, pessimistic attitude. And everything they say is tainted with some little bit of poison on their lips. You know, it's, they, they just uh, are not very uplifting and edifying in the things that they're saying. 
So we have to be careful not to do that sort of thing because we never know who we might be in the presence of that is struggling with something. And that, the, that some ill word that we give may quench the Spirit of God that is seeking to work in the heart of someone. And you see, if we, if we of the right spirit, then we may be a part of that working that God will use to encourage that person. And uh, I'm not talking about the kind of positivity that the world has, where you can only say the things that are politically correct. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those things that are in Christ and those things that will edify the body of Christ. Those are the things that are important. And we don't want to quench the Spirit of God. Notice that it is capitalized. It is capitalized, Spirit, there. So that's talking about the Spirit of God, the work of the Spirit of God. Verse 20, despise not prophesying. Well, again, here uh, in this word, uh, the word prophesying probably covered more than one area. Remember, it was first century church. There were those who, who could and did uh, prophesy in the New Testament. I mean, each one of the apostles were no doubt had this gift of prophesying to some degree or other. And we find that their words were inscripturated because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, was behind the things that they were saying, was in the things that they were saying. So there was that prophecy which would be revelation. Now we know that the revelation is completed. God isn't adding to the Bible anything, any new revelation. So if somebody comes up to you and says they have some new revelation, don't believe them. There is no more new revelation. God has completed the revelation. The book of, of Revelation was the final book. <laughs> and John gave it. So um, that isn't going to work anymore. But there were people in the first century who were involved in this. But then there was also the sense of, of uh, forth-telling. Telling forth the scripture. Now that, of course, continues. Uh, even as I, very, at this moment, am, am, am foretelling the word of God, t- telling it to you, proclaiming it to you, this is the word of God. Uh, by the way, it's not my word. I make no claim to any part of it. I'd mess it up big time. No, it's not me. It's not you. It's the Lord. God has given us this revelation. And so when we foretell it, we simply proclaim the word. I often I thought about that when I was thinking about this passage of scripture. I said, what would they can you imagine there was a pastor in the New Testament, right? So he's in New Testament church, uh, church comes together, uh, they they do have, they have a limited Bible, they have the Old Testament, but perhaps they don't have all of the New Testament yet, right? It hadn't perhaps at this time it hadn't all been completed. This is only 51 A.D. approximately. Revelation didn't come out till 90 A.D. Well, that's another 40 years. What, what were they saying? Were they saying the same things we are? Well, they were told to read, read this book among the brethren. They were told to read it. And so what did they do? They read it. They read it. Now, beyond that, what did they say? Well, it wasn't evidently words that were inscripturated that they said. They had the inscripturated words. They had the, the letter from the apostle. 
So what else did they say? Well, they probably said it quite a bit, but that isn't written down for us. That was just that was just some foretelling. They were foretelling foretelling what had been given and trying to encourage the brethren. <clears throat> and that's what really pastors do, isn't it? We try to encourage the brethren. We should be saying something that is meaningful to the flock, that will edify them, that will encourage them, that will apply to their lives, that will be a means of, of getting them to think just how the passage is meaningful to them and how that it can be to the glory of God in their lives too. So he says, um, despise not prophesying. Uh, probably there was some competition, don't you imagine? Uh, competition is something, it's a human thing. People like to compete. Um, I imagine there was a an Alexander the coppersmith or somebody sitting in the pew every now and then who didn't like what somebody was saying about idols and whether they should be sold in the marketplace or not. Or whether somebody was saying something about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Or whether somebody was saying, don't go to that pagan temple over there, you know what they're doing in that pagan temple, don't go there. You're not supposed to be in there. What communion has light with darkness? You see what I mean? There's always somebody. There's always somebody who despises the prophesying, uh, the the word of God. Prove all things. Hold fast that is that which is good. Now prove all things. Well, here probably we got some some discernment going on. We got to be discerning. We've got to, we got to um, be Bereans, as they say, and study the scripture and check things out and see if that's really true, what somebody is saying. And, I don't know, I probably have made a few blunders along the way. I imagine I have. I don't know about anybody who hasn't. But one of the things that pastors probably need to watch more than anything else is what they say in the pulpit. Because they can come back to harm them. You know, the one thing that you say that that is a little bit kind of not right in there the way you think it should be, somebody will pick you up on it. And I remember years ago, I was just mentioning to David about a couple up in the mountain church I, years ago that I knew, Millie and Bro Grondel. And they was a nice couple. And Millie was my my editor-in-chief of my speech. She would always tell me when I pronounced the word wrong. And she was quick to tell me. She wouldn't get up in the congregation, but she would come up to me afterwards and she says, well, you know, that, that isn't uh, Capernaum, that's Capernaum. Or, or whatever, whatever the word was, you know, she'd give, a, um, she'd give a little lesson to me on how to pronounce that word for next time. <laughs> and I... Uh, at the time, you know, a young pastor, you kind of like, you know, it kind of goes against the grain a little bit. <laughs> but over the years, I learned to appreciate people who who don't who who correct you a little bit, and and you don't have to really you don't have to really have a fit about it. Um, 
you know, one of the ladies uh, at a, in one of the churches that I was at, she would always come up after me and she'd, well, that's a nice little talk. She'd say, well, that's a nice little talk. <laughs> and there I had about an hour's worth of, of getting up a song. That's a nice little talk, she would say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the, you do need to be discerning. You do need to be discerning. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. It's good to be discerning. Um, yeah, you, it's okay to talk to the pastor. Say to, what did you mean by that? Or what does this passage mean? Or I, I didn't really understand what you said about a certain passage. It's okay to do that. If the pastor gets upset, that's his problem. He shouldn't get upset when he, when he gets a question asked of him. He should be able to take it in good stride and say, Oh, well, let's look at that again and see what, what that says. You know, try to make sense of, out of their question and to understand that and to, uh, to give them uh, a, good, a good answer. Uh, so we, we need to be discerning about things. Um, and so he mentions that here. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Now, once you've got a hold of it, stay with it. Uh, James talks about you know being kind of tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We we certainly don't want to do that, do we? Now the the Bible should be um, pretty much a rock that we can latch on to. Once you've, once you've anchored in, into the rock, you shouldn't have to change your mind again. Oh, there's always some, you know, interpretive problems that you'll find every commentator has a, a problem with it. Well, that's okay. They all seem to have a different view of the same thing. And so you kind of have to come up with your own and, and understand you'll probably not say by that passage anyway. That's just one of those little minutia things that they, everybody wants to argue over so I don't bother to argue over it with them but um, we, we need to hold fast to that which is good keep to the truth the solid rock and stay with it and uh, hold fast to it abstain from all appearance of evil and so that's a good one um, abstinence we know what, that, what that's all about and then there's the appearance of evil. Um, you know, everybody has some liberty, we understand, there's some liberty, and you should give people a little bit of liberty to, to do things. I mean, some, some things that you, are not hard and fast, but yet at the same time, we are called upon to abstain from the appearance of evil. I never thought I should go into a bar as a pastor. You might have some you might have some liberty, so I can walk into a bar. That isn't gonna, I'm not going to lose my salvation over it. But if you happen to be seen going back there too many times, it may be an appearance that somebody is going to be offended by and that it isn't going to do you that much good. You know, there's always something that, like that uh, that uh, is just an appearance of evil places you shouldn't go, places, things you shouldn't do, things you shouldn't say, attitudes you shouldn't have, um, those kinds of things, you know. They're, they're there. They're there. They're best understood by you. 
and not by anybody else. What is it? The morality police among the Iranians right now is pretty terrifying. They're going about beating up people because um, they don't wear a scarf over their face or a veil or I don't know what else in their culture that they shouldn't be doing, but there must be more than just one thing. But the Iranians have, have gotten pretty radical on that issue. Pastors shouldn't be morality police. Morality police. We're not morality police. We preach the Bible, the Word of God. And if you're consistent in preaching the truth, then the sheep in the congregation will either stay with you, or perhaps you'll have a backdoor revival. You know, you'll get rid of some of those problem people that just can't, can't take the Word of God. Well, you don't want to lose people. Well, that's true, but are you supposed to compromise so, so that you, you, you please nobody? And you, you, you harm your own conscience in the process? Not a good idea. Not a good idea. So, um, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from the appearance of evil, and then in this kind of a benediction he gives here, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love it that the, the second coming, right, right in there too, I mean, it's the one thing we're supposed to be watching and looking for, and that we're supposed to be preserved in all these things within the church, these things which we have, are being exhorted and admonished in and warned in, we're supposed to be um, preserved in those things, in Christ, and the very God of peace, you see, God who gives us peace, sanctify you holy. Our sanctification holy comes from Christ. He's not talking about sinless perfection or anything here. We're just talking about being sanctified in the Lord. We've got a good, good long way to go to be sanctified fully in Christ until He comes. And then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get the whole, the whole thing then. But until then, we're going to have to work on these things of personal sanctification in Christ. You know, we know Christ has set us apart. That's his sanctification toward us. We are positionally sanctified in Christ. We are in Christ. But then this other part, you know, we have to work on things in our lives, our personal lives. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body. Kind of a trichotomy there. Spirit, soul, and body. Be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will do it. God isn't finished with us yet. He's working on us. Then he concludes by asking them to pray for him. He says, pray for us. He, he uses the word us, the, the pronoun. Greet, uh, greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. And of course we know that the, in that particular part of the world they often kissed each other on the cheek. 
as a greeting. Uh, you even see him do it today in the in the Arab Emirates. I mean, you see him do that. If you ever watch them when they greet one another, they'll do a little on both sides and and then get their knives out and sharpen them. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes they do. Um, anyway, they give each other a holy kiss. Well, the idea is that we give a holy greeting. A holy greeting. A sanctified greeting. A greeting in Christ to greet you in the Lord. So this, uh, this holy greeting... Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the brethren. Well, see, that's what they were to do, right? They went to the Thessalonian church, they'd read it there. Went to the Laodicean church, they'd read it there. Went to the church of Philippi, they'd read it there. Went to the Corinthian church, they'd read it there. I think they had a church in Neapolis too, but never did get an epistle to the Neapolis people. But they probably read it there too. <laughs> well, they were to read the scriptures to flock. The flock. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And with that, we'll close. Loving Father, we do thank you for your word to us. And these words, even in the first century, we're so far removed from our timetable, yet they are just as real and vital to our own walk of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in Christ that we might glorify you. Be a part of the body of Christ, serve the Lord as ministers of the gospel to serve as under-shepherds of Christ, as brethren, as to serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.